It's Friday, August 17th, and this is The Daily Dive. There are few people who have such a huge impact on music, culture, and the world, as did the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, and we just lost her. She died at age 76, surrounded by family in Detroit from pancreatic cancer. With her impassioned gospel-rooted voice, she leaves behind a huge catalog of classic songs that spans many genres. Mo Kelly, Los Angeles radio host and music industry veteran, joins us to discuss her legacy. Next, the bill for President Trump's big military parade keeps growing. The price has just gone up $80 million to a total of $92 million. Inspired by a military parade he saw in France, it is expected to have tanks, helicopters, fighter jets, and more. Amanda Macias, national security reporter for CNBC, joins us for why the price tag is so high and what else to expect. Finally, a popular club drug is being used in more studies to treat PTSD. Although it still has a negative perception as a party drug, researchers are finding out that MDMA helps break down the barriers needed for PTSD victims to process their emotions in better ways. Thor Benson, reporter for the Daily Beast, tells us the story of one veteran who says MDMA saved his life. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Joining us now is Mo Kelly, host of The Mo Kelly Show on KFI AM 640 in Los Angeles. He's got a new podcast on iHeartRadio called Nerdorama, all about comics and nerd culture. He's been in the music industry for 13 plus years, and we're going to talk to him about Aretha Franklin. She just passed at the age of 76. There's few people in this world that really make an impact on everybody worldwide, really, in music and culture. And Aretha Franklin was one of those people. She died of pancreatic cancer. But Mo, let's talk a little bit about her legacy on music. She was one of the few artists who could say that she was a gospel music star in her own right, an R&B music star in her own right, and a pop music star in her own right. Most artists would love to have one third of that career. But she had those three careers all at one time or at different points in her life. And so she will have an immeasurable impact on people because her music was about joy. It had pain, love, loss, longing. It reflected life in all its various, I would say, vicissitudes. There was something for everyone in the music of Aretha Franklin. It's that authenticity that really carries through in a voice. And there's often times when you really feel something from a singer, an actor, a performer, whatever it is. For me, I, I would get these goosebumps and, you know, you really feel whatever emotion or message they're trying to convey. And Aretha Franklin was that person to a lot of people. She won countless awards, 18 Grammy Awards, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, honorary doctorates from a host of institutions. She was so accomplished in music and beyond. But beyond that, in her awards tells you the people that she reached. She was on a cover of Time magazine. She was the first female inductee to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you don't know more than two songs of Aretha Franklin, that's something missing in your life. You're either Aretha Franklin fan or you're Aretha Franklin fan in waiting and you just haven't been exposed enough to her music. I'm willing to bet there's a lot of people that know her music that don't necessarily know it was her if you listen to shows like The Voice or American Idol or X Factor, any of those shows, 
and you listen to a female vocalist and they do all the runs and a vocal gymnastics, as I call it, they are living embodiments of the legacy of Aretha Franklin. They may not know it, but they're singing in her style, the gospel music style of the mid 20th century. There are untold millions of singers and performers that she has directly and indirectly impacted. And beyond singing, she was a, a prodigy on the piano. And I don't know if a lot of people knew that. I Learned, really didn't know that. Self-taught by the age of four. And growing up in, in her father's church, he was a preacher and, and would also do, I mean, he had hit records of his he sermons. Was, he was famous like in his own respect. Right. Dr. King and Mahalia Jackson, Sam Cooke, Albertina Walker. These were family friends. Jackie Wilson, song Higher and Higher. These are family friends long before Aretha Franklin became world renowned in her own right. If anyone was destined for greatness, it was Aretha Franklin. But also she was enveloped by a lot of pain. There was a lot of family drama. Her father was shot. And was in a coma for like five years before he passed. Right. So, But the, all that came out in her music, not explicitly, but it was implicitly included. We talked about her legacy on music. What was her legacy with women and civil rights and the black community? Oh, people don't know that there was a time in which Dr. King had run out of money to help pay for the people who were working for him as part of the civil rights movement. And Aretha Franklin would have concerts to raise money so Dr. King would be able to pay his staff. She was very much connected to the civil rights movement, but a lot of people don't know women were not allowed to have a specific voice, but that was the way in which she helped. She also sang at Dr. King's funeral. The song Respect, which she's so popular for, just had so many meanings for a lot of people, for women and for those in the black community as well. It demanded yes. what the song was about. It was what you wanted it to be. Even though a woman was singing it, obviously on the surface, people said it's specifically about women and respect, but you can't divorce that from the era in which it was recorded and what was going on in general history. So it meant many things to many people. She went through a lot of different record companies, Columbia, Atlantic, and her success wasn't immediate. She grew into the industry. And that's one of the things that she said specifically. I liked not having that overnight success. It taught me a lot of things growing up in the industry. People always said, you know, she never learned how to be pretentious enough to build a false image. That's why she was so true to herself and in the music. And that's one of the things that everybody says about her. She was such a nice genuine person. She was like a family member. If you would meet her, she would greet you and say hello. And when I met her, she was just like that. She was warm. She was inviting, but she was very serious about her music and her performance. If she were to perform, she wanted to make sure the temperature was a certain degree or there wasn't too much air conditioning, which would negatively affect her voice. She was always concerned with how she sounded, but not at the expense of being cruel to people. The Queen of Soul. Where does that name come from? How did she ascend to that name? You have to remember, she's a contemporary, I would say, of James Brown, who was the godfather. It was almost like she was running parallel to him, but there was something greater, I would say, about Aretha Franklin because soul music grew out of what was the, the blues movement of the 50s and 60s. And as soul came along, there was no other person who was even close in a female capacity in terms of soul music. From the 70s, where she really hit her stride musically and gained success, to the 80s on. I mean, it's such a tragedy for the world and such a loss for all of us. The thing that we benefit from is we always have her in her music. Mo, you specifically got a chance to meet her when you were working for the Grammys. 
Tell us a little bit about that. Very quickly, I was working for the Grammys in the mid-90s in the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, and I was running the ticketing function. Anyone who was nominated for a Grammy, and many times Aretha was nominated, the nominees had to personally come in and pick up their tickets. They did not allow intermediaries to do it. So I'm doing I'm sure the tickets. I'm sure they all loved that. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and then Aretha Franklin comes walking through the door. It's like, oh my goodness. She says, hi, I'm Aretha Franklin. Like you, yeah. like, I, like you need to introduce her. <laughs> yeah. And she was just as warm and nice. My mother's family is from Detroit. And there's this kind of this like Detroit handshake. When you meet someone from Detroit, you always ask like, what high school did you go to? Did you know about this stop or did you eat here or there? So you have this degree of familiarity. And it was like I was speaking to my own mother. She's unforgettable. Mo Kelly, host of the Mo Kelly show on KFI AM 640 in Los Angeles. He's got a new podcast, Nerdorama. Check it out. Thank you so much for sharing your stories and telling us a little bit more about Aretha Franklin. Thank you for having me. I think any opportunity that we have to celebrate the men and women of the armed forces of the United States is a great day. And I heartily support uh, the president's call to celebrate our military. Joining us now is Amanda Macias, national security reporter for CNBC. So it was last year that President Trump was in France sitting alongside the French President Emmanuel Macron at the Bastille Day military parade. And he had such a great time there. He said that such a show of might and military power. When he came back to the States, he's like, I want to do something like that for us here in the United States. At first, there was an early estimate that said the cost of a parade like that would be about $12 million. But the story has changed now a little bit. What is the price tag now? Oscar, my sources in the Pentagon are telling me that we're at $92 million for Trump's military parade this November. Oh, my gosh. That, that ballooned up. It's like $80 million more. Where do all these costs come from? So a couple of things to keep in mind is that the size and scope of this can still change because the Army is still undergoing sort of like the structure of what they want this parade to look like. But we're talking about heavy aircraft flyovers. You have to reassign troops that are based elsewhere in the United States who can participate in the parade. And we're also looking at 8 to 10 Abrams tanks, which weigh about 70 tons. And there are no tanks in Washington, D.C. So these tanks are going to have to be transported from say, Fort Benning in Georgia. So we're talking about a lot of assets moving to the nation's capital for this one-day event. There was concern about those Abrams tanks just because they're so heavy. There was concerns that they would even maybe ruin the roads out there. In the further analysis, I said, it's okay because they're, they're big and wide, the weight distribution, it's not going to mess up the roads. <laughs> but I can imagine why that would be such a big problem because then you have to do a big cleanup after that. Right, exactly. The Army has been paying attention to this. So again, they reached out to some experts to look at the infrastructure and to say the Abrams, it's America's main battle tank. It's been in nearly every U.S. conflict. It's a beast and it weighs nearly 70 tons. So is this something that's going to be able to be supported in Washington, D.C.'s and the city? As anyone who's lived in D.C. knows that the city is very complicated to navigate around. And is this the place for a tank, for instance? And the cost at $92 million, that's coming from the Pentagon, that's coming from the Department of Defense. Is there money coming from anywhere else? Actually, that $92 million breaks down in a couple of ways. So the Pentagon is estimating that they'll be on the hook for about $50 million of that. And then the remaining $42 million is going to come from a couple of different interagency partners. So we're looking at Department of Homeland Security, Secret Service. So essentially $50 million would be coming from the Pentagon. It's a significant amount for a military parade, but that burden is shared with a couple of different federal departments. 
the last time that the U.S. had a major military parade was in 91 to mark the end of Operation Desert Storm. What did that look like? How much was the cost for that? So that was around $8 million for that particular parade. Again, it wasn't on the scale of what Trump has envisioned for this November. On top of that, there was another $3 million that was privately raised from donations. That figure pales in comparison when you think of the $92 million that taxpayers may be looking to pay for this upcoming parade. What is this going to look like? I mean, everybody loves a great grand parade. You know, there's be bands, people representative of all the different arms of the military. What else are we looking at that would be involved in this? So one thing Trump has really pointed out is that he was a big fan of looking at all of the different uniforms from each period of the military. So Revolutionary War up into our present military now. And then also included in that would be what future forces may look like. So as we move towards a potential sixth military yes. branch, the Space Force. I love the Space um, Force. <laughs> right. So we could maybe hope to see just a preview of what those uniforms may look like potentially. But on top of that, we've got Abrams tanks, Bradleys, a couple of other armored vehicles, huge aircraft support. And you can expect anything from a helicopter to a cargo transportation plane to the Marine Corps' infamous Ospreys, and as well as fighter jets. So, I mean, every branch of the military is going to be represented. Amanda Macias, national security reporter for CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. They hook him up to blood pressure monitoring devices and other monitoring devices and give him 125 milligrams of MDMA, which they make, and it's pure. It's not the stuff you'll find in the street. Then once it kicks in, they'll start slow, just kind of like saying, like, oh, how's your day? And those kind of questions. And then they'll move on to asking questions related to his trauma. Joining us now is Thor Benson, reporter for The Daily Beast. Psychedelic drugs and things of that nature have gotten a bad rap. They've always been a little dangerous to the recreational user, let's say. But in recent times, it has been used a lot more to see what kind of medicinal purposes it might serve. One in particular is uh, MDMA, also known as ecstasy or molly, and its treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, You spoke to a vet, his name was Jonathan Lubecki, about his experience with it, and he says it was a miracle and it helped him really change his life. He was a veteran who, until 2009, served in the Army, and he was in the Marines before that. He came out of service with a really bad case of post-traumatic stress disorder. He attempted suicide five times. He was extremely depressed, just constantly thinking of suicide, didn't want to live hopeless. Eventually, he stumbled upon the uh, trial that he ended up in that the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies was doing, where they were giving veterans pure MDMA right before they would go into a psychotherapy session. That would help them open up more and be able to deal with this trauma and these memories and such. He only did three sessions with them. That's how much they were supposed to do. And he said his PTSD has gone down 50% according to the scale they use for that. Wow. And um, many of the people that were involved um, say they were cured of their PTSD. Jonathan Lubecki and his time in the Army at one point was stationed at a place called Mortaritaville, which was a place that just constantly got hit with mortar bombs. Totally understandable how it would affect him. You know, the constant bomb droppings affects you psychologically so drastically. He told me uh, one day he was in the night going to the bathroom and the side of the stall got hit right before he entered. Tell us what one of these typical therapy sessions would look like. The whole thing is that this drug breaks down those barriers and lets them really open up and help them heal from the inside. 
Uh, basically, he'd go to this office and walk in, and there'd be two psychotherapists who were heavily trained waiting for him. And then they hook him up to blood pressure monitoring devices and other monitoring devices and give him 125 milligrams of MDMA, which they make, and it's pure. It's not the stuff you'll find in the street. Then once it kicks in, they'll start slow, just kind of like saying, like, oh, how's your day? And those kind of questions. And then they'll move on to asking questions related to his trauma. He told me basically he didn't care what they asked. Um, he could be open with them about anything because the drug just made him so free to talk about whatever he needed to talk about. And in your article, you detailed the first time that he did it. It's it kind of funny even because he had never taken the drug before and he was tripping out over it. He started seeing shapes. I guess there was this painting of a gorilla that kept morphing into Homer Simpson when he wasn't looking. Yeah. So, I mean, the first time I, it kind of took him by surprise. But as we were saying, it, it really broke down those barriers and allowed him to open up about what was really causing him the the emotional stress. Yeah. I mean, anyone who's done MDMA can tell you it's an enjoyable experience overall, but it's also in, in this setting uh, very beneficial because you're feeling those good feelings that you get from it, but you're also just more open and willing to talk about whatever. And that's very difficult for people with PTSD. They're, they're afraid to talk about these memories and their trauma and they don't want to dive back into it because it triggers the PTSD. So it's good that this drug can help them do that. This portion of the trial was called phase two. You spoke to the doctor who was going to be in charge of phase three. What is that going to be entailing? So they'll be doing a more extensive version of phase two, basically, and if everything goes well there, then the FDA has the option to approve this therapy for use by doctors across the country, which could mean not only veterans with PTSD, but anyone who has PTSD for any reason would be able to attempt this and see if it works for them. Right. I, I, that's really the biggest impact. Uh, the phase two results were really promising. There was 107 patients overall. 61 patients after that said they no longer had PTSD. As you said, with Lubecki, his symptoms reduced by 50%. So, I mean, it's a huge impact. And if it goes well, the FDA can approve that stuff. And, and that'd be great for a lot of people that, that suffer from this. Uh, you know, the doctor you spoke to also said that this is different because usually you're treating it with other pills and, and, and Jonathan Lubecki was taking like some 40 odd pills at some point. And those really just suppress the symptoms rather than working on what's going on inside. Right. A lot of what ends up being done is they'll go through psychotherapy and things like this, but kind of the day to day is just taking pills and um, yeah, that'll help you hopefully um, feel better to get through that day and such. But it doesn't really get to the root of the problem. And a lot of the kinds of therapies they've tried for this um, still don't get to the root of the problem. Uh, they'll do this um, exposure therapy where they actually sometimes give them drugs to kind of trigger their symptoms so that they almost get overwhelmed by it so they can deal with it. But it doesn't work for a lot of people and it can be harmful for some people. Uh, of, so this is the opposite of that. Out of this uh, clinical trial, uh Jonathan's not taking any more MDMA, right? And, and then also tell us how he's doing now since he's been out of it. He said he's doing well. Um, he still feels some symptoms of PTSD now and then, but he's living a um, very successful life. He's working with the organization that originally did the study with him. And um, he had worked for Senator Rand Paul's presidential campaign in 2016. And so he's very productive. And uh, he said he'd like to do one more um MDMA session just to see if it could even completely eliminate his PTSD. But he said he's completely functional. And the big thing for him was he doesn't have suicidal thoughts anymore, which was the biggest problem. Wow, that's pretty good. Uh, Thor Benson, reporter for The Daily Beast. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me.
All right, that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.